Hello and welcome to this Christmas edition of the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. In this special edition of the show, we look at a few traditions that we take part in at this time of year. So sit back, relax and let's get started. The first festive item I'd like to talk to you about is mistletoe, which is actually toxic. It's a small, semi-parasitic evergreen shrub, which forms large spherical balls up to a metre wide in the tops of trees. Mistletoe leaves, stems and berries are all poisonous. In fact, bird lime, or a juice made from mistletoe berries, is used as an adhesive to trap small birds. Coils of the sticky substance are placed in tree branches, When the birds land on them, they get stuck, and the birds can then get caught by hand. Take note that this practice is illegal in many parts of the world, though some countries still use this method to capture wild birds for eating. And mistletoe is one of those plants that plays a key role in many traditions and tales. For example, in Norse mythology, the god Balder is killed by his blind brother Hor with, of all things, a mistletoe projectile. Some versions claim he came back to life and his mother, Frigg, cried tears that turned into mistletoe berries and then declared the plant to be symbolic of love. The Celtic Druids valued mistletoe for its healing properties and likely were among the first to decorate with it. The berry of the mistletoe ripens in December and the plant remains green, hence its appeal in wintertime. Many pagan cultures regarded the white berries as symbols of male fertility and the Romans associated mistletoe with peace, love and understanding and hung it over doorways to protect the household. Word of the Week And on this fine festive day, the word I give you is... Tinsel, which comes from the word estincelle, an old French word that means sparkle. The other name for it is lametta, which is Italian for tiny blade. But in all honesty, tinsel probably came from Germany, where, legend has it, it was the tradition to hang thin strips of silver on a Christmas tree to reflect the warm glow of candlelight. Silver, though, tarnishes and it's expensive, so by the early 20th century, people were producing cheaper alternatives. Some of that mass-produced tinsel contained aluminium or copper, but metal shortages during World War I made that idea impractical, and some of the products were dangerously flammable, and so that left the world with the only other readily available heavy metal, lead. So, if you've got any old tinsel icicles, they may contain lead, so don't look them. Earlier in the show, we started talking about mistletoe, and now we're going to talk about why we kiss under it. The origin of kissing under the mistletoe is shrouded in uncertainty, but it is believed the ancient Greeks celebrated the winter holiday of Kronia, a lively festival and one of the biggest of the year with mistletoe. May have started the tradition of kissing under it. In the Christian era, Mistletoe wasn't just associated with Christmas, but it was also used as protection from witches and demons. Continuing to be associated with fertility and vitality through the Middle Ages, 
and then by the 18th century, it also became incorporated into Christmas celebrations around the world. And like with many traditions we have today, it's the Victorian era that's credited with perpetuating this particular tradition. It's said that a man is allowed to kiss any woman standing underneath mistletoe, and that bad luck would befall any woman who refuses the kiss. A variation of this is described in one of the earliest written accounts of this tradition, from 1820, from a series of short stories, many set in England, by the American author Washington Irving. This same series of short stories also introduced the world to such characters as Rip Van Winkle, Ichabod Crane and the Headless Horseman. In reference to mistletoe though, he says, the mistletoe is still hung up in farmhouses and kitchens at Christmas, and the young men have the privilege of kissing the girls under it, plucking each time a berry from the bush. When the berries are all plucked, the privilege ceases. Mistletoe is also the floral emblem of the US state of Oklahoma and the flower of the UK county of Herefordshire. Every year, the UK town of Tenby, Wells, holds a mistletoe festival and crowns a mistletoe queen. This year it was held on the 2nd of December and included a festival and Santa parade. And the queen for the next 12 months is a girl called Charlotte. From at least the mid-19th century, Caribbean herbalists of African descent have referred to mistletoe as godbush. In Nepal, diverse mistletoe are used for a variety of medical purposes, particularly for treating broken bones. What is it called when a snowman has a temper tantrum? A meltdown. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! And so we've talked about mistletoe, and now let's move on to the good old Christmas pudding. In the classic festive tale, A Christmas Carol, Charles Dickens wrote... In half a minute, Mrs Cratchit entered, flushed but smiling proudly, with the pudding like a speckled cannonball, so hard and firm, blazing in half a half a quarter of ignited brandy, and bedight with Christmas holly stuck into the top. Oh, what a wonderful pudding! The very first version of the pudding originated in the 14th century. The British made porridge called frumenti, made of beef and mutton, with raisins, wine, currants and spices. Quite a selection of tastes, really. At that time, pudding tended to be more like soup, and was eaten in the time of Christmas preparation. By the end of the 14th century, frumenti had gone through several names, such as plum pudding, Christmas pudding, or just pud. Word on the street. According to the Royal Mail, the Midlands is the home to the most festive street names in the UK. Holly Street is the most common festively themed name across the UK, along with Christmas Street and Reindeer Road. The Midland tops the UK poll with 560 festive street names, while the South East is in second place with 480. And coming in in third place in the UK poll is the Anglia region, with names such as Bell, Holly, Angel, 
and festival. And as for our area, on the new light green development, there is in fact a mistletoe street. And now back to the Christmas pudding, which, after the 16th century, when dried fruit became more available, slowly shifted from being a savoury dish to sweet. Plum pudding became the customary Christmas dessert around 1650, but in 1664, the Puritans in England attempted to ban it. It said the Puritans thought Christmas pudding to be sinfully rich and unfit for God-fearing people. In 1714, King George I re-established it as part of the Christmas meal, having tasted and enjoyed plum pudding. And so, Christmas pudding once again became the customary dessert for a Christmas meal by the middle of the 17th century. Why it's called plum pudding is beyond me because it doesn't actually contain any plum. This goes back to the Victorian practice of substituting dried plums with other dried fruits, such as raisins. Dried plums or prunes were so popular that any goods which contained dried fruits were referred to as plum cakes or plum puddings. And it's said that Christmas pudding needs to be prepared with 13 ingredients to represent Jesus and his 12 disciples. And every family member has to stir it in turn from east to west in honour of their journey. One of the earliest plum pudding recipes is given by Mary Kittleby in her 1714 book, a collection of above 300 recipes in cookery, physic and surgery. Traditionally, Christmas pudding is made five weeks before Christmas, on or after the last Sunday before the first Advent, which is the last Sunday in the church year. The making of the Christmas pudding was a family event, and everyone in the house would take turns stirring the pudding three times and making a wish. It was believed that if an unmarried person forgets to join in, they'll not find a partner in the upcoming year. Silver coins were also added to the Christmas pudding, the notion being that whoever finds the coin will have good luck. And this may date back as early as the 1300s, when several small items like dried peas and chicken wishbones were added to the pudding mixture. The Scotsman newspaper of Saturday the 7th of October reported about the Army Christmas Pudding Fund, set up to encourage every Briton at home, sheltered from the worst horrors of Armageddon, to contribute to the happiness of those gallant men to whom they owe their safety. That there be no more opportune time than Christmas, and no more kindly method than that afforded by our scheme, and that... In addition, the fund has absolute approval of the Army Council, whose express wish is that the troops should obtain their rations of plum pudding solely through this channel. We've done mistletoe and we've done Christmas pud, but now we're moving on to something that I always look forward to at Christmas time the mince pie. In the Middle Ages, mince pies were made with spiced mutton, which had previously been preserved with spices, sugar and rum. Later, the preserved meat was replaced by dried fruit, much like we use today. In 1413, King Henry V served a mince meat pie at his coronation. Henry VII 
was fond of the meaty Christmas pie as a main dish, filled with minced meat and fruit. As you can imagine, mince pies have been known under several names over the years. Christmas pies kind of indicates their popularity at this time of year. Shred pies refers to the shredded suet and meat. Crib cakes kind of alludes to the baby Jesus in his crib. And wayfarers pies, as they were a traditional treat, served to travelling visitors. And in literature, they've been referred to as mince pies by countless dignitaries and important historical figures. As with many traditional recipes, especially the ones we make and enjoy around the big holidays or life events, mince pies are steeped with tradition and customs. Mince meat would often be made on stirrup Sunday, along with the Christmas pudding, the last Sunday before Advent. In the north of England, goose was used in the pies filling, but generally beef tongue was also used. During the English Civil War, the mince pie became a victim of the Puritans' eradication of Catholic customs, saying, Nay, the poor rosemary and bays and Christmas pie is made an abomination. In Marchmont Needham's book, The History of the Rebellion, he wrote, All plums the prophet's sons defy, and spice broths are too hot. Treasons in a December pie, and death within the pot. And there were some that considered them so unholy and evil that they were unfit to occupy the plate of a clergyman, causing Philo Clericus to comment, The Christmas pie is, in its own nature, a kind of consecrated cake, and a badge of distinction, and yet it is often forbidden the druid of the family. Strange that a sirloin of beef, whether boiled or roasted, when entirely is exposed to the utmost depredations and invasions, but if minced into small pieces and tossed up with plums and sugar, it changes its property and, forsooth, is meat for his master. The trio of spices used, nutmeg, cloves and cinnamon, is said to be symbolic of the gifts given to the baby Jesus by the three wise men in Bethlehem. Originally, mince pies were often made in an oval shape, reminiscent of the crib in the manger where Christ was born, while the top was symbolising the cloth that he was swaddled in. Later on, different shapes became ways of showing off the skill of the best pastry makers in the land, who would create intricate mince pies with stars, crescents, hearts, flowers and sugar nut gardens. And lastly, if you want to ensure good health and happiness in the upcoming year, you should eat one mince pie every day for the 12 days of Christmas, from Christmas Eve until the 5th of January. Don't know about you, but I've started early just to make sure. What's the difference between the Christmas alphabet and the ordinary alphabet? The Christmas alphabet has no L. Ho, ho, ho! Merry Christmas! And now I'm going to talk about a little-known tradition regarding the keepers of the lighthouses and light ships, whose vocation in life was to guard our coasts, warning the mariner of dangers to be avoided. These people weren't forgotten at Christmas. An article in the Western Morning News of Saturday the 19th of December 1931 tells of the good work of the organisation of the Missions to Seamen, where parties of kind-hearted women from different towns adopted a lighthouse or lightship 
in a way, becoming their foster mother. And when the Christmas season approached, each of these foster mothering parties got to work to make a hamper of gifts for the members of the crew who will be on duty in that particular lighthouse or lightship. And the arrival of these hampers as close to Christmas as possible provided the lonely crew with a Santa Claus visit all of their own. The hampers would usually contain such wonderful gifts as warm clothing, fruit, chocolate and other treats, together with tobacco, cigarettes and stuff like that. By the way, the Mission to Seafarers, which was formerly known as the Missions to Seamen, is a Christian welfare charity serving merchant crews around the world, and it was founded in 1856. It operates through a global mission family network of chaplains, staff and volunteers, and provides practical emotional and spiritual support through ship visits, drop-in seafarer centres, as well as a range of welfare and emergency support services. And they still run an appeal to make Christmas special for those at sea. If you'd like to donate, go to their website, missionstoseafarers.org. And now to end this particularly festive episode, here's a news story from 1864 that I thought was rather amusing. It happened in Leicester County Court on the 14th of December and it involves the case of Shinentini versus Paul. The plaintiff was a concert hall performer and the defendant the proprietor of Paul's Music Hall in Leicester. The plaintiff told how he had ridden to Mr Paul offering to perform as the man monkey and gorilla and his wife would take part in the ballet. Each party had to give two weeks' notice if they changed their minds. And so the defendant accepted the terms and told them to start at once, which they did. But even so, they were dismissed after only two weeks, and Mr Paul refused to pay him. The plaintiff then handed the judge some placards with engravings of gorillas and reviews from newspaper critics about his performance. The judge asked... Were there any complaints made about you? To which the plaintiff, Shantini, replied, Yes, the defendant said I got drunk, but it was only part of the business of me tumbling down. The monkey is supposed to get drunk. The defendant, Mr Paul, said that the engagement of the plaintiff resulted in a complete disappointment, and he told him the day after his first appearance that his engagement would conclude in a fortnight. Apparently, the plaintiff was really drunk, and his wife had fallen down during the show and pulled the set with her. In the end, the judge awarded the plaintiff the two weeks' wages he was owed, as agreed upon. Back in the day, facts. Righto, my friends, and this is a Christmas special. So we're going to be looking back on what happened on Christmas days in the past. In 1066, on the 25th of December, William the Conqueror is crowned King of England at Westminster Abbey, completing the Norman conquest of England. 
and considering he'd only just killed the previous King of England, he prudently posted knights outside Westminster Cathedral to deal with any remonstrators. When the guards heard the shouts of acclaim from within, they thought some sort of assault was underway, and responded by setting fire to every building in sight. Anyway, the quick turn of events was the only time anyone would see William the Conqueror pale and trembling. William wouldn't be the last monarch to be crowned on Christmas Day, because also on that date, Charles II was crowned King of Scots in 1651. On the 25th of December, 1223, St. Francis of Assisi assembles the first nativity scene in Greco, Italy. On the 25th of December, 1643, Christmas Island is founded and named by Captain William Miners of the East India Ship Company vessel, the Royal Mary. On the 25th of December, 1914, the legendary Christmas truce takes place on the battlefields of World War I between British and German troops. And so, instead of fighting, soldiers exchanged gifts and played football. And lastly, on the 25th of December, 1932, during King George V's Christmas dinner speech, he fell through the seat of his favourite chair just as he was about to speak. Well, I'm afraid that's the end of this year's Christmas special. And as always, a huge thanks has to go out to the festive stars, which, for this particular show, were Marcus KP and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, and Sreese Reed, Rose Hales, and Cassidy Jeffries. Thank you, one and all. Now, before I tuck into some more mince pies, I'd just like to say thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show over the past year and wishing you all a very Merry Christmas and a fantastic 2024. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 